You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we're joined today by Brian Gibson, who is a diplomatic historian focusing on the Middle East. He's an adjunct lecturer for the State Department's Foreign Service Institute and an instructor on sectarian divide in the Middle East in the Sunni versus Shia. He's also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University's Krieger School of Arts and Sciences here in Washington, D.C., where he's the instructor for two MA-level courses, Politics and Security in the Middle East and Global Security Studies. He holds a Ph.D. in International History from the London School of Economics and Political Science in the U.K., and he's the author of Covert Relationship. American Foreign Policy Intelligence in the Iran-Iraq War, 1980-1988, and co-editor of the Iran-Iraq War, New International Perspectives. He's also the author of a new book, Sold Out, U.S. Foreign Policy, Iraq, the Kurds, and the Cold War. Brian, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCraft. Thanks for having me. So the reason your book really jumped out to me is I think that there's a lot of ignorance out there. And I don't use that word to be mean. I mean, a lot of people look at America's role or America's relationship with Iraq as something in the last 15 years, you yeah, know, I mean, post 1990s. Yeah. I mean, from, from my generation, I'm a little bit older, you know, a desert storm is really kind of the first indication. I mean, I remember a little bit about the Iran Iraq war in the 1980s, but I think very few people understand how far back this goes. And that's why this book was really interested to me um, because it goes back to the very end of world war two. I mean, and I think that even if people are surprised, they may not be surprised by the reasons that Iraq played a significant role. Uh, the Soviet threats, oil, a lot of the same things that you know we we pay attention to today when it comes to the Middle East, except for the Precisely, Soviets. Yeah. yeah. Um, and one thing that was really interesting to me, and you can talk a little bit about this, is this perception that people don't necessarily understand today, but this, this zero-sum idea mm-hmm. of the Cold War, where an area of the world wouldn't be considered necessarily a strategic American interest, except for the fact that the Soviets considered it a strategic interest. Can you talk a little bit about that, how that applies to Iraq and the Cold War? Well, when the Cold War first started uh, in the 1940s and into the 1950s, and they started establishing their containment uh, where they would uh, gather up an alliance of, of states that surrounded the Soviet Union, and Iraq played a key part of that because they were in the string called the Northern Tier that ran from Turkey through Iraq 
uh, and into Iran and then Pakistan. And the Baghdad Pact is named after this alliance. Uh, and Britain was involved as well. And the United States played a kind of secondary role to it. But uh, the big fear with Iraq, not just because it had a lot of oil, was that it was really close to the Soviet Union. Um, it was just a really quick hop over the Zagros Mountains uh, that run between Turkey and Iran, and you're there. And then, then it's flat desert after that. So the U.S. looked at their oil assets, which were really important in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, where they had a very long relationship with them. And you look at Iraq, and you can imagine that if, you, if you're actually looking at a map and you see these mountains, it's not that hard to get across them if you're airlifting or whatnot. Right. I think people don't people look at Iran today and don't quite understand the relationship pre-1979, where mm -hmm. Iran was a staunch American ally. Very close, yeah. In Iran and Turkey, Turkey, of course, is, was then and is still part of NATO. Those are the two nations that border the Soviet Union directly. Mm -hmm. And if you could circumvent that barrier yeah, by getting into leapfrogging. Yeah. Yeah. That would be really problematic. I mean, it's the same reason we were worried about Saddam Hussein going into Kuwait was that it was a straight highway yeah. to American and British oil. Yeah. Very close. So I, I, I think people might also not be surprised to learn that U.S. interventionism during this time is really what contributed to Iraq's economic and political destabilization, as it still does. Absolutely. You know, there, there's a long history of us meddling. Yep. And again, this is not some liberal philosophy of, you know, we shouldn't be interventionist. Uh, there's pretty staunch evidence that you provide in your book that we really mess things up. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> kind of the uh, one of the big points that I drove home. Uh, and this is just the idea that interventions during the Cold War have had a destabilizing effect. Now that draws on uh, Adorno Westad's uh, famous book, The Global Cold War. Um, he was one of my uh, colleagues at the LSE and I became very close with him. And when I was looking at Iraq as a case study for his argument, which he didn't really discuss much in his book, but I couldn't think of a better example of where these interventions did help pave the way for the rise of Saddam Hussein whether intentionally or not. Right. I'm more on the not intentional well, side. Yeah, you would think we would not do that on purpose. Uh, and w w why it's interesting to me is that a lot of the interventionism we're talking about was centered around CIA-led covert action. Yeah. And that's not just for one administration. That goes from the beginning yep. all the way through later on. So let's break this down a little bit. And let's, let's start with the Eisenhower administration because that's kind of what you do in the book. Mm -hmm. Eisenhower worked or wanted to at least work with Nasser. Yes. And, and why that's really interesting to me, and, and it should be to others, is that our main allies in the region, if you talk about the British and the Israelis, mm -hmm. did not want to work with Nasser. In not fact, they all. even saw communism as less of a problem than Nasser was. This is a real breakaway. I mean, you look at, yeah. you look at what we might consider to be this like strong Western bloc, mm -hmm. especially in the 1950s, yeah. against communism in the Soviet Union. But this is an instance where that went out the window. Yeah. The special relationships. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, where we, I mean, you, it's not hard to look at Suez in, the, in 56, but this is beyond that. This is the idea that just didn't trust Nasser. Well, and when you look at 56, 56 was such, uh, and this is when the Suez crisis happened, where the United States got kind of blindsided by the Israelis, the French, and the British, who all concocted this kind of scheme to regain British control over Egypt. And... That was a big break 
with the Eisenhower administration because they were A, left in the dark, and B, furious that this intervention that they did and didn't consult the Americans with uh, happened at the exact same time as the Hungarian uprising, which the U.S. wanted the international media to focus on that, not some colonial action, right. uh, police action against Nasser. But what's so surprising was the Americans were really upset with Nasser because he went to the Czechs to purchase weapons after they had rebuffed them. So the Americans were really kind of tenuous with Nasser. And that's why when you look at this uh, kind of post-Iraq revolution in 58, this sudden collusion between the Americans and the Egyptians, that's quite striking. Uh, you, there's not a lot of discussion about this in uh, other sources that I've looked at. And so this collusion really uh, stood out as something that was quite fascinating because the British, uh, who were the dominant power, they were called the regional policemen, or this was their part of their sphere of influence. Mm. Uh, when you're looking at the British, the British wanted Nasser as far away from the Persian Gulf oil as possible and actively worked with the Iraqi, uh, the new Iraqi president after the revolution, Abdel Karim Qasim. Uh, they actually secretly supported him, but the Americans weren't sure about Nasser, uh, not Nasser, Qasim, because he was deemed pro-communist. Right. So you get got this really kind of, the special relationship didn't quite add up when it came to this question in the region. And you bring up an interesting point. I mean, this is, again, might be very difficult for some of the younger listeners to understand. This is a time when the United States was very willing to let Britain take the lead yep. in the Middle East. They, they, they hadn't left yet. They were still considered kind of the lead uh, country when dealing with this. The Americans were It was kinda, their sphere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the flirtation with Nasser certainly will come mm. to be important later on. Yeah. Um, but you brought up Kasim because you look at the JFK administration because they were much more overt about being covert. Yes. yes. Uh, about using the CIA to look into potential ways mm -hmm. to overthrow Kasim mm -hmm. after he started thinking about nationalizing U.S. oil companies and movements toward. He nationalized their um, the area that they can search for oil, which any place that they hadn't actually searched yet. The Iraqi government took back the right to own that, which was something like 98% of all Iraqi territory. Right. In the book, I laughed when I read that. I was yeah. just like, and they were like, you can have everything else. I was like, thanks. Yeah. Um, and then you even get to the, the Nixon administration, where, where I'm skipping Johnson, but we'll get, uh, this is just a brief overview, mm -hmm. um, where the Kurds really come into play here. Because yes. under Kissinger, who is both Nixon's Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, this real alliance, for lack of, well, it, this is the kind of the sold out part of your title of your yes. books. This at least tentative alliance mm -hmm. between the Americans and the Kurds um, really starts to play out as Iraq gets closer to the Soviet Union. And, and again, anyone who knows Desert Storm or the war in 03, Iraq had all Soviet made equipment, Everything you know, Soviet. T-55, T-72s, MiG yeah. aircraft. This is where that starts. Mm -hmm. uh, this is where that buying begins. And so Nixon and Kissinger kind of sidle up to the Kurdish groups. Uh, and this is where this real interesting relationship begins. This is when it gets very complicated and very uh, bifurcated, where one side of the government is acting as if everything's normal, and then the secret side of the American government is doing anything but normal things. <laughs> well, and that's really interesting to me that the JFK side, he starts this dual track policy that yes. you're talking about here, where there's overt State Department engagement with the Iraqi government, but at the same time, behind their back, there's this covert attempt by the CIA to find ways to overthrow the government. This is really 
and you can correct me if I'm wrong, where we see the Bathists for the first time. Yeah. And, and during JFK's administration. But they were around, they, they'd been around for quite some time. In 1959, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, who's a Bathist, probably the most famous Bathist ever, he tried to kill Qasem. And that was part of a plot to unseat him, which I, I'm fairly certain, at least from my research, that Nasser was actually behind mm-hmm. this. Um, the CIA hand, the CIA are accused of being involved, but I've never seen any like smoking gun document that suggests that they were actually the ones who were right. kind of the puppet masters pulling the strings. And the CIA gets blamed for just about everything that people yeah. want to blame them for in the time. Yeah, and in the Middle East, they're everything from a mouse farting right. <laughs> is blamed on the CIA. Uh, and uh, a great, uh, I was. I interviewed a, a Canadian uh, intelligence officer who was this charge d'affaires in Baghdad once, and uh, he's like, the one thing that you'll know the more and more you get involved in the intelligence field is that the CIA, while they've got this amazing reputation, they are not that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if the CIA was was involved in everything we've been blamed for, being, we, we, they've been blamed for being involved in... Uh, yeah. There'd be no real problems in the world if they were that yeah, powerful. Yeah, if they were that yeah. good at what they did, yeah. everything would be peachy. <laughs> There's a really interesting personality here that I think we need to talk about before we move on, and that's Mullah Mustafa Barzani. Yes. Uh, who is legendary. Kind of legendary. He is the head of the Kurd, the Kurdish leader, who had been exiled to the Soviet Union in 1946, I believe. Yeah. Um, and, and then he comes back. But because of his time in the Soviet Union, we, we had a weird, interesting perception of him. We, we couldn't get beyond, at least for a while. Yeah, he was known the, as the Red Mullah. Right, the idea is he's a Soviet puppet. Yeah. Um, but you, you argue in the book that he, he really came back from the Soviet Union, like so many others do, jaded about socialism, yes. untrusting of Moscow's intentions. Is this a real missed opportunity, the United States, to work with somebody who wasn't going to become another Mao or another Ho Chi Minh or somebody that we, almost another Tito in this case. I was case. actually yeah. just going to say, he reminds me of Tito. Um, yeah, this was absolutely a missed opportunity. Uh, and the worst part was, was that the main reason why it was missed was because uh, people at the State Department were like, we need to focus on improving relations with Iraq, not with this rebel leader up in the mountains um, who lived in the Soviet Union, so they assumed that he was a communist. But he's not. He was a kind of conservative tribal leader. And so it took a lot of arm twisting. Uh, I think it was in 1962. No, it was actually 1963 when someone was like, we actually need to kind of talk to him. Mm. We need to get a really good sense because we've got these journalists who are going there and are interviewing him. And they're like, he's not a communist. At least nothing about him comes across as that. Right. That was in 62. But then by 63, when the Ba'ath Party was in power and it was kind of the, the Cold War balance in Iraq had actually shifted in America's favor. Suddenly they were like, we need to actually talk to right. the Kurds because this war between the central government and the Kurds is destabilizing the country, which is giving the Soviet Union opportunities to kind of meddle in their, their affairs. And to the point where they tried to launch coups, they tried to, there were, there were a ton of things in 63 that happened that, right. um, I've never seen anywhere else other than in my own research. Well, what's interesting is you write when the, when the Ba'ath take control, mm-hmm. the roles are somewhat reversed, like you just talked yes. about. This idea that now the Soviet Union is trying to wage a covert war mm-hmm. against the government. Uh, and that really kind of 
forces the U.S. to get involved. You wrote that in 1961, there was a Kurdish uprising, not yeah. by Barzani, but Barzani kind of gets, gets pulled into it. Yeah. And the Soviet Union actually has their hands in this a little bit, where... Well, these, at least there's allegations. Allegations to try to distract from Berlin. Yeah. But it doesn't work, because JFK doesn't really care. Yeah. But by the time the Soviets... Talk about this zero-sum idea. Mm-hmm. By the time the Soviets are now waging a covert war against the government, it kind of forces the United States mm-hmm. to get involved. Um, and you even talk about that they're uh, talking again about the CIA being involved in other things yeah. that when the Ba'ath take control, they go and kill a bunch of the communists. Yes. And they have this list yeah. that the CIA is accused of, of providing, which is something that comes up all the time. This is one of those kind of canards from uh, about Iraq and CIA that pop up in news articles like t- contemporary news articles today. They're just like, yeah, the CIA did this and the CIA did that. And uh, Iraqis are firmly believe this. I've met with uh, Iraqi parliamentarians and Kurds that are like, oh, well, you know, the CIA <laughs> was behind this. But when you look at the actual evidence uh, and, and the lists is, is one of the more interesting ones, because, yeah, I confirmed that the lists existed. But the question that I raised was, why would the Ba'ath Party need lists of communists when just like a year earlier, the communists were out in the public. They like they could sit there and mark down the names of who these guys. They didn't need the CIA to be like, "Hey, these people are communists." Right. It's like they already knew who these people were because they're their enemies. Right. I mean, this is the second yeah. time the Bass have yeah. come into power, right? Or is this the first time? Uh, this is the first time. Okay, so but they had been plotting. Yeah. To, you know, so they knew who the bad guys were Precisely. without the CIA. That, that's like uh, would be like today people being like. Here's a list of Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when like like after the end of the George Bush administration, someone handing like some enemies of of the Republican Party a list of the Republicans. It's like, no, you know who they are right. because they're public officials. And that's it's it's kind of ludicrous when right. you really get into it and actually look at into the evidence because uh, I mean the story doesn't check out. Before we move into hunkering down a little bit more on the Kurds, I want to take mm-hmm. a, a step back because the Kurds, okay. I think, are some of the most misunderstood groups. Absolutely. Uh, the, the Peshmerga, the Kurds. Um, you hear about them all the time today because today, they are yeah. one of the, the strongest forces going up against ISIS and up yeah. against some of these governments. They're not Arab. They're not Muslim. Nope. Um, oh, they are Muslim. Oh, some of them are. Some uh, of them are. They're, I mean. they're, they're more or less Sunnis. Okay. Uh, but the thing is, is that they're because they've been so isolated from the rest of Iraq, they're, they're not like Saddam Sunnis. Right, okay. Because they hated Saddam, and uh, a lot of them are quite secular. Right. But, again, you can be a secular Sunni. Saddam Hussein was a secular Sunni. Right. So, uh, so let me, yeah. wait, they're, not, they're not fundamentalists. Let me, let me put no. that out there. Yeah, okay. No. So they, I mean, there's certainly like fringe elements of any population that are fundamentalists, but they are very unified, uh, even though elements of them hate each other. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that that's one of the questions that people ask me and people want to know about because there is this back and forth about they're the one group fighting yep. ISIS. Now, why not help them? Why not supply them with more? And the answer usually is there are minorities in Turkey and in Iran and places that, especially Turkey, that we Turkey's have close issue. alliances with that don't like the Kurds very much with the PKK and other groups that, uh, sure, they're helping us fight ISIS and others, but an ally would be destabilizing to a very key NATO ally in the region. Yeah, I mean Turkey wants nothing to do with the Kurds. Uh, they've they they will trade with the K, like the Kurdish regional government. Uh, they're happy to buy their oil, 
But the thing is, is uh, they have this really, they didn't even call them uh, Kurds up until I think 2008. Before that, they were known as Mountain Turks. So they, they denied the existence right. of this ethnic minority, which is a large part of Turkish population. You're, it was illegal to speak the Kurdish language. Um, these restrictions have been lifted, uh, but only recently, like in the last 10 years. Um, so they, they have this real big problem with, with uh, the idea of an independent Kurdistan, um, because if, they, if Kurdistan as a country, if you look at a map of where the Kurds live in the Middle East, it's a huge area. Right. The, uh, Turkey would lose the kind of uh, the eastern half of their country. Um, Iraq would lose the northern part of it. Iran would lose um, a section of its uh, western part. But yeah, it's it's a, a large amount of square miles uh, that they live in, um, and it straddles three countries, four right. countries really, because there's also Kurds in in Syria. So it's it's really complicated. But this is like a four thousand year old uh, right. like group of people who are distinct, ethnically different from Turks, from Persians, from uh, Arabs. And like Saladin, one of the most famous Middle Eastern uh, like historical figures, he's a Kurd. Oh, I, I had no idea. That's interesting. <laughs> and that's a Saladin, what, the Third Crusade against Richard the Lionhearted. Yeah. I mean, I'm going he back to... Richard the Lionhearted. Right, I'm going back to like undergrad history, but <laughs> yeah. I remember how important he was. I mean, this is not within the auspices of your book, but the... Yeah. The, the reason we, let's use the word sell out, the reason that we abandoned the Kurds after Desert Storm is this the same reason that we're talking about now? Because didn't George H.W. Bush promise he would help them yep. if they rose up against Saddam Hussein? And then when they did... And got crushed. We said, sorry, guys, you're on well, your own. They, well, they said sorry, and then they followed it up with uh, very quickly Operation Provide Comfort because they felt really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but... I mean, this is one of those, uh, like, the Kurds have a long memory, and they look at these events, and they they, they look at the events in 75, where the U.S., quote-unquote, sold them out, um, and then they look at 1991, where they got abandoned again, and so there's, uh, for a group of people who really like the United States, um, there's a lot of reasons for them to be uh, a little uncomfortable with this relationship right. that they're developing now. But now is kind of their moment in the sun. People now, like walking down the street, have heard of the Kurds. Whereas before that, they might remember, oh, didn't they get gassed at Halabja in 1988? But that would be the extent of it. Right. Um, people don't, didn't, don't know their history. And uh, that is one of the things that kind of attracted me to them uh, in the beginning is... Uh, when I did a lot of work on the Iran-Iraq war and uh, of course you look at what's happening, you look at what happened at Halabja, but then for me I kind of did a George Lucas style where I wrote the second <laughs> part first and I went back to the beginning because I was like I need to know the context of what, right. uh, like better of what led to my, my first book and that's when I started digging into this and that was my PhD topic and as you get more and more into it, it it's a kind of a harrowing tale that like the history writes itself, it ends in tragedy. Right. But it's a matter what a lot of people didn't get and don't understand is the context in which the tragedy unfolded. Because you look at these, there's newspaper articles that come up every once in a while that mention the sellout in 1975. And when you dig through what they're saying, 
it's not right. It's, mm -hmm. it's not uh, based on fact. It's actually based on a leaked uh, congressional report in, that was leaked to the press in right. 1976. Well, let's work our way up to that, that sellout. Yeah, so let, let's hop back to the LBJ administration okay. because he, you know, he, you can go back and forth all we want about how good of a president he was, but Vietnam will always kind of be his legacy. Yeah. And so he, he had to take a different tactic when dealing with this area of the world because he was so focused yeah. on Vietnam. Well, and domestic reform. And, well, and domestic reform yeah. from the Great Society and everything else. Yeah. And, and so you, you talk about him building what he called the Twin Pillars. Mm -hmm. And this is building up Iran and, and the Saudi Arabian uh, uh, government. Uh, is this why you get the current strength of Saudi Arabia? Is this why the Americans and Saudis are, I mean, obviously it's oil. Yeah. But is this where this tight relationship really comes into play during the Johnson administration? Yeah, well, what it really boils down to was Britain's decision in 1968 to announce its withdrawal of all of its military forces east of Suez, which included the Persian Gulf. Now, prior to that, Britain had been the kind of regional power. They dominated, they provided security for everyone, and uh, a lot of these states were in a kind of semi-colonial uh, state. And Britain's withdrawal at, in 1968 is kind of crucial because what was going on in 1968, well, Vietnam was very much escalated right. and the United States were incapable of taking over that role. They even offered to just pay for Britain to stay. Uh, but the British couldn't sell that to their public. So I remember, right, you talk about them withdrawing like right around the Tet Offensive. I mean, yeah. right in the beginning oh, yeah. of 68. So I, when... I think it was like a couple days later, the like maybe two weeks later, the Tet Offensive began. Because that, that was end, end of January 1968. Right. And it was like January 15th when they announced it, but they told the Americans like five days before then. <laughs> and which was a great, great, great interaction between uh, Rusk and uh, George Brown where he slammed his hands on the table and was like, God damn it, <laughs> like Britain, like you're Britain, yeah. like you're like you're supposed to be like a world power and you're acting so cowardly. And but it was because the Americans were really upset because they weren't able to fill in that that role. And that was what led to the twin pillars. Um, but yeah. I mean, the decision to build up Iran and, and Saudi Arabia have long-term consequences. One of which being the Saud—I mean, the Shahs, the Shah of Iran's uh, kind of spending spree, right. which helped bankrupt his government and then contributed to uh, the overthrow of his government about a decade later. And then uh, with Saudi Arabia, this was when uh, when Iran fell in 1979. There was only one pillar left, and so that meant that they had to focus all their efforts on building up, you know, the, right. the Saudis. And that of course has long-term consequences because now the United States is in this like oil relationship on the one hand and a security relationship on the other. And the Saudis know this and leverage it against the United States right. a lot. So right before Nixon took over, the Baths took over again, yes. uh, which, you know, there's a lot of back and forth in this book between mm -hmm. Who's in charge? But this is really the, yeah. kind of the last one of those because yeah. the Baths stay in power until 2003. Right until 2003, and and yes, it's not Saddam Hussein the whole time, but it's him or his uncle or yeah. somebody else. What's interesting to me is that the Nixon administration would later really start to care about the Middle East, but at first they didn't as much. Perhaps mm -hmm. I mean, they kind of implement the Nixon doctrine as they try to do around the world. They yeah. kind of uh, in Vietnam the Vietnamization. Yeah. You know, do you see you see that same thing in the Middle East? Yeah. Um, 
Well, the way it was uh, described in documents was that they farmed out their um, their foreign policy to the State Department and to regional desks because uh, Nixon believed that uh, you know if you got entangled in these small little third world con- conflicts, you're going to lose sight of the bigger picture, which to him was the battle with the Soviet Union, and he wanted to kind of put the Soviets on their knees, and. He did that through the opening to China and then through the SALT engagement, and which created detente. And it was really interesting to, to see how important the Persian Gulf was for the Johnson administration and how little it mattered immediately afterwards. Mm-hmm. And even one of the first crises of the Nixon administration was Iraq hanging, uh, I think it was like nine Jews, uh, publicly which led to Israel launching attacks on Iraqi forces in Jordan. And it was just this really kind of dangerous situation that could escalate quite quickly. And they, after that, they just didn't really touch <laughs> on the subject for quite some time. And so it's all State Department. Right. But uh, then, of course, after Kissinger takes over the State Department, then it starts to become a lot more important. And that's where you, you start seeing Kissinger working directly with the Kurds and, and against uh, it was a little before then, yeah. uh, because the reason why the Kurds were kind of brought on to, uh, brought to the attention of the White House was because uh, in 1972, uh, well, in late 1971 through to April 1972, the Iraqis moved very qu- close to the Soviets very quickly, signed a treaty of friendship and cooperation, uh, allowed the Soviets to kind of build up uh, one of their big oil fields in the south, and you just started started to see regional leaders like the Shah or the Israelis or um, uh, the Jordanians and even the Saudis approaching the Nixon administration saying, hey, you, you need to do something about Iraq. We're, we're growing really concerned about this. And your best bet is to work with the Israelis and the Iranians to support the Kurds because they'd been supporting them since the, like, 1963. Right. So... It seemed like a logical place for them to go uh, with their their operations and whatnot. And, and covert action seems to be the, the natural choice here, especially because the person who had just been replaced at CIA mm-hmm. ends up as the ambassador in the region, essentially being in charge. And this is Richard Helms, yeah, which was a demotion, right? Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's handy to have somebody that understands covert action now, yeah. kind of at State Department looking at the entirety of the Middle East and really understanding yeah. how the CIA can be used as a tool there. Mm-hmm. And, and Helms knew the Shah uh, from his role as, you know, being one of the senior intelligence uh, official in the U.S., but also they went to the same school when they were kids. They didn't go at the same time, mm-hmm. but they lived in the same place and so right. that they could familiarize themselves through that. And... Yeah, that was a very interesting move on the Nixon administration's part. And it was because Helms refused to cover up Watergate. That that was why he got demoted, and that's why uh, he wasn't... Uh, Nixon never trusted the CIA from the whole uh, the missile gap thing right. during uh, his first run for presidency. And so he hated the CIA. And I found out, I'm not sure if I even include this in the book or not, but Helms wasn't even allowed in on cabinet meetings uh, for the first year of Nixon's presidency, hmm. which is very peculiar. Right. Uh, they would call him in to do the briefing, and then he would be kicked out of the room. And that that shocked me, because this is a senior official. But eventually, cabinet officers were like, 
you've got to have the, the director <laughs> of the CIA here. Like, you can't just cut him out. He needs to give his, his take and his assessment on a lot of really big issues right. that we're dealing with. And so eventually Nixon relinqu- relinquished his uh, banishment, I guess. Well, I mean, especially with Nixon being the foreign policy president that he was. Yeah. I mean, he, he it's not Johnson has, you know, the full attention on domestic policy or Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Nixon is known for his foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, he was, uh, I've read, I, I find Nixon a fascinating character because I'm a foreign policy guy. Yeah. And from that perspective, he's, he's quite incredible. But when you look at him as a person, you're like, he is yeah. sleazy. <laughs> But not in like the LBJ type sleaze or the JFK type sleaze. He was just like, well, a tricky dick, right. was like his nickname. And uh, but he would do anything to win, and that's why he is who he is, and why he like the '72 election was one of the greatest electoral victories of all time. Uh, and so I find him such a fascinating person. But yeah, he was the foreign policy president. He was very much uh, kept away from domestic policy and focused on the bigger picture of the, the competition with the Soviet Union. And this operation to help the Kurds was all part of that. Um, it was, it's all interlinked it, right. as part of this geopolitical competition. It, maybe I'm over-reading this, but it almost mm-hmm. read like the operation with the Kurds was almost like a dress rehearsal for what comes later in Afghanistan. I mean, it's not directly against yeah. the Soviet military, but Kissinger really wanted the Soviet Union to bleed, at least economically. Yeah. Right? Did this become like just a bottomless pit of them just throwing economic aid yeah. after Iraq, one after the yeah. other? Which was exactly what uh, he, I think he even, uh, he said this in his memoirs. He was like, the purpose of the operation was to teach the Soviets a lesson that if they wanted to enter in the Middle East, it wasn't going to be cheap. And, and which was precisely what ended up happening. Their relationship with Iraq was never particularly yeah. good. And the Iraqis kept the Soviets at arm's length, too. Uh, and that existed all the way up through the 1980s. Um, they were very much, people like Saddam was someone who, he didn't need someone else to help him make a decision. He made the decisions himself. And the Soviets could say whatever they wanted. And, and the Iraqis persecuted against communists plenty of times during Saddam's time in power. So at which drove the Soviet Union nuts because they're like, you're supposed to be our ally, but right. you're killing communists. And he's like, I'll kill anyone who yeah. who chal- potentially poses a threat to my control of the country. And well, and, and you, you, well, you don't cover this because you, you, you stop your book uh, in 75, but you, you, you obviously are an expert on the Iran-Iraq war side of it. And it's the, the you know, delve into the idea of the covert aid to both sides oh, that's... during this time. We can take a couple minutes for our, our listeners who don't know. I know you, yeah. you could probably talk about that for hours. Yeah. Well, uh, but kind of how this relationship's built upon during the 1980s. Well, the really peculiar thing is, so uh, after the Kurdish operation came to an end in 75, members of Congress leaked this report that exposed the Nixon administration's involvement with the Kurds. And this is the Pike Committee report, This is the Pike right? Committee yeah. report, which I've been trying desperately to get my hands on a copy. If someone knows how to get me one, like, not the one that was right. published, but an actual copy, because there's one page missing and it deals with my subject. But um, what's interesting about the, the Pike Committee report and the leaking of it was the Iraqis were like, well, now we know for a fact that you were helping the, the Kurds. And you always denied it, but now it's a fact. Like, this is an, uh, a public secret. And 
Kissinger's response to that was, well, we thought you were close to the Soviets at the time, and which I thought was amazing. And uh, But what's really interesting is then fast forward four years and the Iranian revolution has happened. And again, that uh, kind of bal- regional balance of power just changes overnight. Right. A pro-American uh, uh, monarchy, the Shah, is overthrown overnight and a radical fundamentalist government uh, comes into power who hates the United States. That is their, one of the central components of their ideology is anti-Americanism. And so suddenly Saddam doesn't look so bad, especially because Iraq and Iran are regional rivals right. historically. And so, also remember, uh, Saddam is a Sunni secular person, whereas now Iran is a Shia uh, fundamentalist theocracy uh, theocracy, and who hates the United States. So the United States very quickly were like, well, Iraq doesn't look so bad, especially because the, the, the Kuwaitis, the, uh, the, the Saudis and the Jordanians and the Egyptians, all the Sunnis kind of backed Iraq in this war. And the United States very quickly at first, they didn't really care. Um, they were happy to see Iran and Iraq bleed each other dry, but in 1970, through 1971 into 1972, Iran reversed Iraq's uh, territorial gains to the point where they were at the border. Mm-hmm. And in June 1972, uh, the Reagan administration was faced with a very, very, very challenging uh, situation where if Iran broke through at Basra, that would put them within a couple... Uh, several dozen kilometers or miles from, I'm Canadian, so <laughs> <laughs> several hundred, uh, I'm sorry, uh, several dozen miles from Kuwait and Kuwait's oil right. wealth. And then just beyond that are where the main Saudi oil fields are. So the real fear was that if they could smash through the Iraqi defenses, Kuwait and Sa- Saudi Arabia's oil fields would be within striking distance, like easy striking distance. Uh, like it, they could get there in a day or right. two. Uh, and the idea of Iran then controlling not just Iran's own oil wealth, but Iraq's southern oil fields, Kuwait's oil fields, and, and the Saudis, Saudis yeah. that would put them in control of something like 60 to 70 percent of the world's right. oil supply. And to the United States and to the Western Europeans and like to pretty much everyone, this was this couldn't happen. They had to do everything in their might to prevent Iran from gaining control of this. So what they opted to do was they sent, uh, I think it was uh, Tom Twetton, who's a CIA, uh, he was in the Near East uh, Bureau, and they sent him with, uh, uh, to Baghdad with these uh, very uh, precise drawings of uh, where Iranian forces were laid out and gave them suggestions on where they should put their troops to kind of prevent a breakthrough. And this established kind of, uh, they, they couldn't give the actual satellite because right. those were highly classified. Right. And so they put you know, a blank sheet of paper and got an and, artist and to come in it. Yeah. and to trace the, yeah. whole, the whole thing out so that they could be like, oh, okay, we know exactly what you're talking about. And then so for the, uh, much of the rest of the war until the exposure of the Iran-Contra scandal, uh, in, uh, and that was in 1986, mm-hmm. um, up to that point, this was the basis of the relationship. Uh, now, the United, a lot of people talk about uh, the United States giving weapons to Iraq. Um, I couldn't find a lot of evidence mm-hmm. that showed that American weapons were being sent to Iraq. 
uh, mainly because, as we discussed a little while ago, all of Iraq's weaponry are so right. Good. Yeah, I mean, the possibility of us giving them captured weapons from the the Eastern mm-hmm. Bloc. Yeah, but in Desert Storm, we didn't run up against any American-made weapons. No, you know, it's only now that we're running up against American-made weapons. Yeah, that, that <laughs> have been captured from the Iraqi military by yeah, ISIS. Mosul. <laughs> yeah, you, you you mentioned the phrase balance of power, and as a, as one diplomatic historian to another. Uh, this is certainly a, a kind of a way that many of us look at the world, certainly during the Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, versus this ideological framework. And, yeah. and the reason I bring that up is there's a surprising lack of discussion of religion mm-hmm. in this book. And, and, yeah. I, and in one, one case, I found that very refreshing, but I also found it interesting because we're talking about the Middle East, yeah. right? And, and it might be very surprising also for listeners to understand that these were nations, not just the United States, but these were nations in the Middle East mm-hmm. who were doing business with one another and with the West based on realpolitik, based yeah. on like this very calculated balance of power philosophy mm-hmm. and not on Shia-Sunni rivalries and not on death to America religion. Yeah. And that comes, you know, like you said, in, in, in 79. The, rev- the Iranian revolution yeah. was what really tipped things over. Because uh, uh, we haven't really talked about Arab nationalism because during the 50s and 60s, that was the like unvogue like right. ideology in the re- region. That was what Nasser sort of espoused. But the defeat of Egyptian forces, like the crushing defeat at the hands of the Israelis in 1967, uh, yeah. uh, June 67, uh, that kind of showed the bankruptcy of uh, this idea of Arab nationalism and Arab unity, especially because one of the main reasons why Nasser got uh, uh, whipped so bad in 1967 was because he was fighting a civil war in Yemen. So it with this war in Yemen in 1967, uh, Nasser had something like 80,000 troops stationed there at the time of the war. And so the devastating defeat of the Egyptians uh, kind of showed that this ideology of Arab unity and Arab nationalism, when Nasser's fighting wars against other Arabs, right. um, is kind of bogus. And at that point, Arab nationalism starts to get shoved aside for political Islam. And you see that through the 19, uh, much more in the 1970s. And of course, this, uh, the Iranian revolution just shows that, um, uh, you know, Muslims can take control of a state, can overthrow at seemingly impossible odds, a strong dictator Mm. like uh, the Shah, and then establish an actual Muslim form of government. And so this, this kind of brings religion up much more into the forefront. And one of the really interesting things, and this kind of goes back to uh, that 1972 offensive when the Iranians were on the gates of Basra, was the Iranians actually assumed that the Shia population of Iraq, which was something like 60%, and who were under the heels of the Sunni uh, uh, minority, and so were the Kurds as well, but uh, the Iranians actually believed that the Shia would rise up against Saddam, and they didn't. Mm. So this is a kind of a fascinating moment in history where everyone's like, oh no, what's going to happen if the Shia do this? We're in trouble. Like, this is what kind of helped bring about the, uh, the giving of the intelligence to the Iraqis. And then the Shia didn't. They actually stood and fought against the Iranians, which kind of reinforced this, the, the Arab versus Persian right. dynamic where religion didn't matter as much to these people. It's only really been since uh, the overthrow of the Ba'athist regime in Iraq in 2003 that the, this kind of sectarianism that is 
kind of the dominant thing right now in the Middle East really started to, t- to take form. And that was because the balance in the region, uh, the sectarian balance, where uh, the kind of uh, Shia crescent, which runs where this is where the Shias are large populations, which runs from Iran, which is a majority Shia state, uh, through Iraq, which w- was ruled by a Sunni and now is ruled by the Shia, right. uh, but is also a Shia majority state, through to Syria, which has uh, an Alawite government, which are a subsect of, uh, of Shiism, and then into Lebanon, where you've got Hezbollah, which uh, are the Shia are now a majority there. Right. So the, the turning of, the, of Iraq from a Sunni state to a Shia state completely altered the kind of sectarian framework of the region. And another aspect of this is the champion of the Shia is Saudi Arabia. Sorry, the champion of the Shia is Iran, and the champions of the Sunni are Saudi Arabia. But when you look at the metrics between Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, Iran is decidedly more powerful. It's got a much larger population. It's got a more sophisticated population. Uh, they've got better education. They've got uh, a very strong military that's uh, indigenous, so they don't have to rely on other countries, which is a byproduct of them being abandoned by everyone in the right. Iran-Iraq war. But then you look at the, the uh, Saudis, and the Saudis have a very tiny population. They do not have a very sophisticated military. They have not been tested militarily, other than a bit of skirmishing uh, with the, uh, in Yemen. Uh, they haven't really been tested all that much. But then you, uh, whereas the Iranians fought the Iran-Iraq war for eight years. Right. Uh, so what the Saudi strategy seems to be is to kind of invigorate uh, and, and shift the balance in the region in their favor by playing the sectarian card with Sunnis right. and, and playing it as the Iranian Shias are trying to take over and they're trying to shift, to kind of balance things out a little bit. You'd mentioned that 79 was kind of the key turning point with the Iranian revolution. Do the CIA docs... Uh, demonstrate that? I mean, before 79, do you see any discussion of Sia Shuni uh, religion in CIA analyses and in documents before 79? And do you see a dramatic change after 79? I mean, is that is that something that is is represented in CIA uh, you know, CIA internal documents? Yeah. Um, I haven't found a lot because that's not really something that I've like I'm looking at this from kind of a purely foreign policy mm-hmm. point of view, and y- you do see things here and there. Um, I certainly saw stuff in the early formation of the Iraqi government because that's the next project I'm working on, uh, where when suddenly they name the cabinet to the the monarch, and this is obviously around the 1920s, and they're like, mm, it's all Sunnis. I think the Shia population, which are the majority, might be upset about mm. this, but it's a monarchy. So what are you going to do? Right. Uh, and the United States did not really have much of a presence in the region at that point. Um, so then when you're looking into the 1950s and 60s, it's mainly about uh, Arab nationalism. Yeah, so there's, there's just no real discussion about that. Yeah. It, it, it does come up here and there, but not very much. Because oh. the early Ba'ath Party had a lot of Shia in it as well, which a lot of people don't uh, realize. Uh, and because they're secular. Right. Like, they believe in separation of church and state, and or mosque and state, and... Uh, so that kind of changes things a bit. So Dr. Brian Gibson is an author of several books. Uh, one of them is Covert Relationship, American Foreign Policy, Intelligence in the Iran-Iraq War, 1980-1988. He's also co-editor of the Iran-Iraq War, New International Perspectives. And finally, the author of a new book, Sold Out, 
U.S. Foreign Policy, Iraq, the Kurds, and the Cold War. Thank you, Brian, for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.